Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss a new report from the Competition Bureau on the declining state of competition in Canada's economy, as well as other big developments, including this week's inflation and business confidence numbers. Amanda, we have a lot to cover. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Great to be with you. Let's start with the Competition Bureau's report, which came out this morning on October 19th. It's a pretty wonky study that relies on different indicators to measure concentration across the economy between 2000 and 2022. We can leave it to economists and others to debate whether the methodology is good or bad or whatever, but the key findings are bound to influence politics and public policy. The top line findings are that there is indeed growing concentration, particularly in industries with already high levels of concentration and fewer new market entrants. What's your initial reaction to the report? So I'm really happy that this has been undertaken. Uh, I think most Canadians will have a sense that certainly in some sectors that we're very familiar with, we have a few big firms. We often talk about the oligopolies in banking. Uh, groceries, of course, have been very much in focus. You could throw airlines into the mix. Because of the nature of telecoms, I shouldn't leave them out, because of the nature <laughs> of our country, uh, we definitely have developed sectors that um, are a little have been protectionist over time. And we've got these these few big players leaving open the question, is that good or bad? Are we well served or not? And the Competition Bureau, which under the commissioner, Matthew Boswell, really wants to have more teeth in the competition laws, did, as you say, this kind of exhaustive look. The news is terrible. Uh, there's three three measures that they're using. One is how concentrated, you know, how many uh, how many firms are in a sector uh, We're getting more concentrated over the last 20 years? How many new entrants come in? In a healthy market, people try to butt in and do better and take your business away. Uh, we're doing terribly there. New entrants are falling. And then the one that will feel very familiar uh, is that profit um, and the price, the sales uh, price of things have gone steadily up and it's gone up mostly on the most valuable items, which should be the place where people are most vulnerable to competition. So you take those three things together and you say, this is bad. To your point, I will this become a political? Will this will something good come of this or will this kind of be shelled somewhere uh, and be used by the competition commissioner to try to change the law? I don't know. I hope it comes up in the House today. This is a big deal. Mm. I think what's interesting, Amanda, is that progressives across the Anglo-American world are increasingly focused on the subject of competition. We're seeing trends in the United States and the United Kingdom, for instance, along those lines. But there's also conservatives who are increasingly interested in whether there's a need for a new competition regime 
The motivation might be slightly different. In those cases, I think conservatives are concerned about the market power of major players essentially limiting access to conservative books or conservative ideas or whatever. So the motivation might be different. There is this growing common interest in possible competition reform. Do you think there kind of counterintuitively may be an opportunity here for a bipartisan agenda around competition reform? I, I really do. And I think you're getting at a really important point, which is um, one of the things that's happened in recent years is that new technologies have kind of blunted the the force of the old competition laws. Um, Amazon is front and center. It's obviously right now embroiled in a Department of Justice dispute. That could take years. But the heart of it is really important, which is we get this new technology. It creates a new platform. And almost under our nose, you, you know, the, 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 the marketplace becomes dominated. Well, we now have AI. We have all these emerging technologies that are in the hands of a few big players we better be paying attention. I'll tell you, there's something, Sean, much closer to home for Canadians that we need to care about. The piece of this that the Bureau looked at of new entrants, this is true. And there's recently data from um, BDC as well, just this week, on the number of startups. Um, and for the first time in a long time, it's declining in Canada. And that is chilling because we've always got that right. We, we, we are a place of ideas. We are a place of entrepreneurs. Where we fell down historically was growing uh, our, our startups into giants. And so that was always the focus. How do we get people to stay in Canada and, and create you know, Canadian behemoths? If we stop the startups, wow, are we in trouble on the productivity and, and wealth creation side. So to me, the competition question is central to that, and we better be paying attention. Yeah, great, great insights there. Another element of this conversation, though, is the subject of foreign investment and foreign ownership, particularly in protected parts of the economy. There has been a hesitancy on the part of successive Canadian governments to revisit foreign ownership restrictions, whether it's in aviation or, or banking or telecommunications. Talk about that inherent challenge. How can a government catalyze more competition if it's not prepared to open up the markets of foreign players? So there's a couple of ways you can do it. Um, and I, I think the place that we have traditionally tried that we're pulling back from is on the forces of competition globally side. So we have always been, of course, a trading nation. That's good for our businesses. It's good to be out in the globe competing against others for, uh, for you know, the global pool of marketplace, not just that American one. We're pulling back from it like everybody else. The protectionism that is afoot in the world is bad for Canada and it's especially bad for us. So if I had, if I were, you know, king for a day, uh, I would throw us open to free trade, uh, because that would actually force. And by that, I mean, does that mean that Verizon can compete in Bell's market? Maybe it does. Maybe we should be looking at that. Do I, as a Canadian, think I like that we have Canadian-owned businesses and maybe we do want telecoms that are Canadian and there's limits on foreign ownership? That's a different question. If we had full competition in the sector and protected our Canadian players, um, I think there's, a, there's some kind of marriage of those two things that would serve consumers well, uh, as long as we're seeing the new entrants come in and new products come in. And we can't just be this moribund market of the, you know, the existing entrenched players serving us. Yeah, great points. The political case for free trade has always been made principally with Canadian exports in mind. The idea that we're blasting open access to new customers in, in new markets. But as you say, oftentimes the most powerful consequence of free trade isn't those export markets. It's the market competition that can be imposed on domestic firms to make them more 
productive, to encourage greater investment in technology and so on. And so a world in which we face greater protectionism, it won't just mean that we lose access to those markets. It's that we lose access to that competitive pressure on our on our own firms. And, and so it prompts the question, how can Canada steer against the protectionist tide that you're referring to? There's growing interest, Amanda, in some circles for new values-based trade arrangements. There's talk about the need for a possible new Bretton Woods model. How can Canada play a role globally in trying to push against the trend to protectionism, which could be so detrimental in, in these different ways for Canada's economy? Yeah, so it's so difficult. And you know, I went just one place, this is a whole other conversation, but one place it's happening that we better all be worried about is this uh, that protectionism around chips. And the US is taking this to new heights, not only saying uh, you can't build chips in China and you can't uh, sell chips to China. They're l- literally limiting the access by Chinese tech firms to the chips that will power the technology of the future. That's like cutting off, you know, oxygen to that economy. So I don't know what's going to come of all of that. Canada can play no role in that. The U.S. is doing what the U.S. is doing. I would say we do what we always do- done, which is hold our lane and 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 be forceful in our arguments for this stuff. But we do have relationships. We have relationships with the whole Asia Pacific region. We have relationships with the EU. We should be forging new ones with the UK. And we should, and India, by the way, um, diplomatic spats aside, we should continue to build these bridges at the level, at the business to business level, which is way below that. Don't, I mean, you, you were in the room for all of this. So there is that like upper level of nation to nation, leader to leader, I've always been told that it's sort of governor to premier where things really get get heated up. And I imagine there's even a level down, right? We're in the sector level where you can build bridges. I would put the question back to you is, where is the policymaking around facilitating that for Canadian companies and, and really helping us think about the world as our market? Yeah, I would make two points in response to that. The first is Canada, I think, is widely recognized, Amanda, for having a really strong trade policy capacity. And if you think about it, we have more free trade agreements with other countries around the world than virtually any of our peers. And those have required Ottawa to build up a really strong kind of comparative advantage when it comes through thinking about the design of trade agreements, processes around monitoring those agreements and the underlying trade policy. And so it seems to me as we reach something of a diminishing return when it comes to opening up new free trade negotiations, it seems to me there's an opportunity to kind of turn that capacity towards some of these bigger questions and exercise a bit of, I hate to use this term, thought leadership on building a case for what a new WTO looks like. Like, How do we move beyond the moment of protectionism that you're talking about? The second point I would just make, which seizes on your observation about the relationship with governors and premiers, I think there's really something there. Not only is Washington, you know, by and large dysfunctional, there's also the obvious asymmetry between Canada and the U.S. at the national level. But at the subnational level, that asymmetry disappears. And so if I was advising, say, Premier Ford, I would be really doubling down on a binational agenda with New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and others around transportation, around human capital, around climate change, around R&D, in a way, trying to cut Washington out and building those relationships at the subnational level. I think that's a way at least to mitigate against some of those protectionist pressures that you're talking about. But I want to take up one separate but related dynamic here as we think and talk about competition policy, there is an extent, and it's something you and I have talked about in the past, 
where the government kind of likes the model of policy limits on competition because it affords them the opportunity to effectively demand concessions from industry. It's not lost on me this week that Finance Minister Christia Freeland essentially used moral suasion to ask banks to lower fees and help mortgage holders. The banks get regulated profits, and in turn, they have to play ball with Ottawa. How much do you think that weighs on the minds of policymakers and in turn represents something of an impediment to an ambitious competition reform agenda? I mean, I would be, I think it's overly cynical to, to say that a, uh, that a government would shrink from um, introducing new players because it reduces their clout with the with the major with the concentrated players um i see your point though i was horrified i don't know about you but i don't i i, I don't think it's the role of a finance minister to tell businesses um how to operate what prices they i don't think they should do it with grocers i don't think they should do it with bankers i get the politics of it uh but by the way if you want to create an environment where banks lower their fees create an environment of constant of less concentration and more competition where they're fighting for our uh, our savings accounts and our business. Uh, that's what a government should do. They shouldn't be in there saying, and I'll tell you where I get really uncomfortable is when, and Christian Freeland did this, uh, they're, they're encouraging the banks to change the terms of mortgages so that people can, can hang on to their mortgages. Now, I realize that that sounds like I'm saying I wish people, you know, would would have to deal with the fact that they're in over their head and they might lose their home. And but that's, you know, as cold hearted as it may seem, that is the way the market is supposed to function. And if the if the banks create this environment where, by the way, they're not helping people. And for some people, it's it's a ticking time bomb. They haven't even really absorbed. We're just sort of kicking this can down the road. I just think that's a it's an unseemly place for politics to reside. We have regulators that are saying the opposite, that are telling the banks to be prudent um, and watch the mortgages and don't let amortizations get out to 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, so I, I I don't know. I, you know, there's obviously some some po- just retail politics, Sean, but to me it was a it was a little bit unseemly for the government to go there with the banks. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Yeah, I would just say in the name of fairness that it's not unique to this government. Uh, you know, Jim Flaherty, as finance minister, wrote letters to bank CEOs that didn't quite threaten the imposition of new public policy, but sort of signaled that in the in the event that banks didn't cooperate with government priorities, that such policy interventions can come. And it seems to me that the reason that those threats work is because these sectors are so regulated and because there's relatively small number of players, it's relatively easy for the government to go to those players and insist on changes in business practices or behavior or whatever in a way that actually influences the industry as a whole. And so, you know, the best way to reduce that politicization of business, as you say, is to inject greater competition I suppose it's an outstanding question whether politicians are prepared to kind of give up this form of 
public-private partnership that we see in parts of the economy. I want to turn, if that's okay, though, to this week's inflation numbers, which showed that inflation grew slower than expected in September. The growth rate of 3.8% is, of course, still higher than the bank's target, but seemed to be almost viewed as a win amongst analysts who were expecting it to be higher. What do you make of the numbers, Amanda, and how do they factor into the Bank of Canada's announcement next week on interest rate? I mean, I think it was a surprise uh, to almost everybody that it didn't hold it for down at 3.8%. Of course, that is out of target. The internal measures that the Bank of Canada likes, there's a couple of them, both uh, down as well, still not where they want it, but trending in the right direction. And of course, we're now in this this kind of delicate area where the bank doesn't want to push so hard. And in fact, this may have happened three rate hikes ago, history will show. Uh, that we wind up in a deep recession, but they do want to make sure they've done enough to keep inflation moving. I think what we, we got the Bank of Canada's business uh, survey, its, out, its outlook survey this week as well. And there's a piece of it that is tied to consumers. And that actually is very telling because consumers are actually um, overstating what how inflation is uh, is affecting them. So one really interesting place we're in, Sean, and I don't know if you've kind of put your mind to where this is going to lead us, but uh, we do have this situation where we still see real wage pressure. People are demanding higher wages and businesses are paying higher wages while we're simultaneously seeing businesses prepare for a slowdown. So layoffs are happening. Uh, so you're going to see fewer workers, but those you, you keep are more highly paid, which is an interesting dynamic. Um, and of course, that that could well spell a mild recession um, and it could be painful for some. But to me, we're in this interesting place where consumers need to catch up um, and I think most people think the bank holds next week. Maybe that maybe the bank is done. Um, but we're, I don't think anybody thinks the bank's turning uh, to, to lower anytime soon. We're not there yet. And there's still obviously like a good point and a half to two points uh, that we got to go to get back into range. Yeah, as I was preparing for our conversation, Amanda, I thought increasingly it's more useful perhaps to speak to psychologists than economists, um, because between businesses and consumers, we really are now in the world in in which our efforts to control inflation will be as much about psychology as it is the underlying economics. Philip Cross, the McDonald Laurie Institute economist, has a column in the Financial Post today in which he warns that higher than target inflation is becoming entrenched in the economy. He, He points, as you mentioned, Amanda, to rising wage demands. What are you hearing on Bay Street these days? What's their psychology? Have they come to build higher inflation into their medium term mindset? So we're not actually getting a lot of people admitting that, if I can put it that way. Um, I think there's still a sense that we'll normalize um, back to kind of whatever. The problem you run into almost immediately, Sean, of course, is what is normal? Is normal where we were uh, before, which was abnormal historically, uh, or is normal where we were 15 years ago? Um, And I think most people are kind of getting their heads around the 15-year-ago model so that a kind of a 4% overnight rate isn't isn't unusual. Uh, and I think businesses are starting to get comfortable with that. Consumers are a different story because we, um, of course, are, we are much less rational in our decisions. What we are seeing is that consumers are putting, are changing their, our buying patterns so that we're buying less with anything that requires any kind of credit or financing and, and spending more on immediate purchases for consumption. So look for services to do well, experiences, travel. Uh, the question will be, do we pull back altogether? because we're seeing wages go up. So it's a funny dynamic. Um, and I don't know, you and I should actually wager uh, periodically on wh- whether what we think this coming slowdown looks like and whether in fact there it's a recession in name only or whether there is actually you know a recession of some kind. Um, I'm kind of 
at this today at this moment leaning towards name only. Yeah, I think that's right. Although one thing I was thinking about, particularly with respect to the Statistics Canada's business confidence numbers that you mentioned earlier, is the challenge facing policymakers when it comes to this question of psychology. You know, on one hand, there may be a, an impulse to want to address that declining confidence and, you know, in a way, try to restore the animal spirits to avoid a recession. On the other hand, if you're too successful at that, you'll continue to put upward pressure on inflation, which, of course, would necessitate more interest rate hikes. So we're going to have a fall economic statement in less than a month out of the federal government. And it'll be interesting, it seems to me, Amanda, to to try to discern what their bigger concern is. You know, that is to say, are they primarily concerned about trying to stave off a recession? And, and if so, we may see something that I wouldn't quite describe as stimulus, but some measures to try to assuage the yeah, business and consumer confidence? Or is the government genuinely committed to bringing inflation back down to target, even if that means a recession, as you say, in, in something approximating name only? How do you think the government and, and, and policymakers elsewhere are thinking about those kind of inherent tensions? I mean, I think uh, obviously there will be a temptation to help. Affordability is still the number one concern expressed by um, by consumers, and the, and the knock on effect for businesses is that it's the ability to spend. So many businesses are expecting to see their sales decline uh, in the year ahead. So if you're the government, if you're the finance department, you're thinking hard about that. I hope you're also looking at your own balance sheet and. Uh, doing the math on what rising rates have done. Uh, you look at the 10-year the yields uh, on our uh, treasuries and, of course, the U.S. Treasury. They're at you know levels we haven't seen since 2007. So your costs have gone up. And I just hope, I mean, I hope, hope, hope doesn't make it so, wishing doesn't make it so, but I, you hope that people will say, we just have less to spend, folks, just like you at home. Um, I'd love the finance minister to get up and say, here's the math on it, what rising rates, we're all paying the same price, um, but it means we've got to tighten our belts as well. And this is how that looks. Can you do targeted assistance? I don't know, maybe, um, but I hope it's just a minimal and lip service because there's a lot of spending still happening post pandemic that was never clawed back. Yeah. What I would say, having spent time working on budgets and full economic statements, both in the prime minister's office and in the minister of finance's office, is there will be an instinct towards what you might describe as action, you know, that the politicians around the room will want to be perceived as being active and responsive to what they're hearing from Canadians. But that doesn't need to be limited to measures that would necessarily have in inflationary consequences. I, I think, for instance, if I was advising the Minister of Finance you know, at the national level or provincial level, I would be using this opportunity to roll out really ambitious regulatory reform agenda that says one of the reasons we've had this inflation is because of the disequilibrium between supply and demand. The way we get supply is opening up the market in various areas. We've talked in the past about housing, but the basic principle extends to energy and, you know, various other parts of the economy. Is this the opportunity to, to sort of have the political capital to do something really big on the regulatory front? You know, because you can present it as, in a way, responding to these issues, even if the benefits of such an action may not manifest itself, you know, for some time. What do you think about that? I love that thinking. I mean, I, I, 
I, and, and I'm, I guaranteed because, I mean, you would know, but I guarantee that that's the kind of thinking that would go inside, uh, go on inside finance. And uh, there's smart people who understand wh- exactly what you're saying. And there's lots of things, of course, the government can do that doesn't cost it uh, dollars in their current operating budget, right? But that make changes, you know, a, a whole host of things. Some of them, of course, would require, uh, cooperation from the provinces and um, and exerting influence on the provinces. And of course, the government just got a smackdown from the Supreme Court about going too far on that front. So, you know, we'll see whether or not um, they're they're more timid on that. But I do think there's a lot you can do to help that is. But it comes back to Sean, does that look good on the front page of the paper the next day? Uh, is that is it a headline that says, you know, the government's, you know, reforming, you know, reducing red tape around, you know, whatever it is, um, they could introduce laws, uh, Maybe yeah, and I don't even know how what, how much of this is federal, how much of it is provincial. But for instance, a cost of living increase uh, that just is just this law of the land. If you have a, if you have a salary, it's going to go up at the rate of inflation, um, no matter what. You don't have to go negotiate that because over time we've seen people's salaries decline year after year after year because they don't have that. Uh, I think there's lots that they could do. I hope they do it. Um, we our our fiscal situation will be significantly worse, right? We just know that's the case because of what's happening with uh, with the bond markets. By the way, back to Philip Cross's point, we've talked before about the inflationary forces of uh, the green transition, the inflationary forces of um, well, we could throw energy prices into the mix, and of course demographics. That's that are, they're very real for us. We're going to see how much infl- immigration helps with that, but that's a very real issue. So we may just have structurally higher inflation in our economies for a while, which is something we have to ponder. What do we do about that? Yeah, we haven't even spoken about geopolitics and the prospect of a Middle Eastern war, which puts upward pressure on oil and gas prices. Those will be subjects we'll have to take up when we get together in a couple of weeks. I want to thank you so much, Amanda, for speaking with me today and look forward to catching up soon. Always good to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.